The reading for today's sermon comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious Father, how we need your wisdom and insight, your care and your patience, something like the same attention to the details of your word as your spirit has expended in inspiring it, and as you do as our Heavenly Father in sovereignly superintending every detail of our lives. So teach us to approach your word with that appropriate trembling and care, and open our eyes so that we may perceive true and wonderful things in it and be better equipped to live with faithfulness and to be conformed more to our Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen. Please take a seat. And if that's a smoke alarm, then um, it's actually a, a doctor about to go and administer precisely the kind of life-saving... Can we pray for Mr. Sutherland? Presumably that's urgent. Let's just pray briefly for him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Mr. Sutherland as he's got to dash and uh, take care of business in the hospital. We ask you to go with him, keep him safe, and above all, work in and through him and his assistants and colleagues as they seek to save life, even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd be grateful if you could um, grab your Bibles, open them again at 2 Thessalonians 2. Let me say another welcome to you, uh, particularly those of you who are visiting. I can see some uh, new faces here. I've said hello to some of you. It's great to see you. Uh, some of you are doubtless in the fellowship hall. Uh, that wasn't our intention. If you're visiting today, you're in the fellowship hall. There actually is some space down here, but um, uh, we thank God for those members of All Saints and others who may be down there. So, that, um, uh, As we try and work through the overcrowding blessings that we have here at All Saints, um, we're all able to uh, be patient and be assured that the session is actively working on solutions to this wonderful and most glorious of all problems. Uh, particular hello to Mr. Alaji. Munir, it's great to have you with us. We had a great time on Friday. It's the first time I've met Munir, uh, and we uh, recorded a podcast, which will be coming out soon. I know he's been seeing some people in the congregation, and do stick around for Forum, because that'll be a great opportunity to get to know him a bit better after the service. And so we come now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and frankly, it is a little difficult to find many Bible passages that have generated more varied implausible and downright ludicrous interpretations over the last 2,000 years than this one. And it's easy to see why. Just look again at what we've just read, okay? And try and imagine yourself as a writer of science fiction 
And imagine what you might do with this, as indeed some have. Verse 2, the day of the Lord. Verse 3, the rebellion, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who takes his seat, verse 4, in the temple, proclaiming himself to be God. There's something restraining him in verse 6, and that something turns out to be someone in verse 7. And then the verse 7 also has the, the mystery of lawlessness. And verse 8, that Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth this lawless one. And then you're on into verse 9 and following and so on. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And all the people said, jeepers, what on earth is all this about? And this has provoked some wild reactions in Christian circles over the years. People just well-intentioned Christians just trying to figure out what on earth this is all about. Um, Some of the most outlandish suggestions have come from uh, friends in dispensationalist circles. Hands up if you remember Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth. Have you you read that? Hands up if you've read it. Come on. Be honest. Yeah, see one or two. Yeah, there's always a few. Um, uh, Published in 1970, before the end of the 20th century, it sold 35 million copies. Goodness knows how many it's sold now. Uh, proposing a fairly wacky bunch of interpretations of this and other future-oriented passages. Even that, though, is dwarfed by the, the Left Behind series. How many of you heard of the Left Behind novels? Yeah, okay. Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins, thank you for con- contributing more to eschatological confusion than anybody else in the history of the church, probably. I think it's something like, what, 85 million copies sold of this 16-part series, which is basically a a sort of futuristic, novelistic attempt to interpret the book of Revelation and 2 Thessalonians and bits of the Olivet Discourse and so on and so forth. In other words, we are in a, we're in a complete pickle on this stuff. Now, in Reformed circles, uh, there's a more common reaction which goes a bit more like this. <laughs> just, just confusion, really. Um, what does it mean what possible relevance could it have? There's, there's often a suspicion that it probably doesn't mean that, but then what does it mean? What is it all about? And today, here I am looking out at a bunch of, you know those emojis you've all got on your phone, the kind of wide-eyed, starey like emojis? I'm looking at a couple of hundred of them, and goodness knows how many in the fellowship hall. I want to acknowledge, like, this is difficult. Our, our very own James Jordan, who's not here today, he's ill, so we should please pray for Jim, that he'd be better soon. He wrote a series of essays on this and related themes and Even he attempted to set out what he called, quote, the most likely, unquote, interpretation. Now, Jim, if if you're not sure, then what hope for the rest of us? Um, So what I I plan to do today, okay, I'm going to drag you, I don't normally do this, but I'm going to drag you kicking and screaming through some, not all, don't worry, but some of the exegetical weeds on this one. Um, What I want to do is to give you a, I don't want to just tell you what I think it means, because that's like, well, how are we supposed to um, evaluate that? But neither do I want to spend four hours turning every tiny little corner in the long grass. And so I think hopefully we can strike a happy medium where I'll, I'll try and give you a sense of the main debates and, and some of the exegetical twists and turns, so you at least see why I think this means what I think it means, probably. And I'll indicate where I'm more certain and where I'm less certain. But then I, what I don't, want to, I don't want to forget the practical. So the second thing I want to do, which should be towards the end of today, first, you know, 40 minutes or so, I'm joking. Um, I, I, do, I want to zoom out and give you a sense of the implications of this. And, and I was thinking about this this morning. I think I, I just want to cut to the chase now. 
I want to give you one sentence that if this is all you remember from today, in amid the haze of the man of lawlessness and the rebellion and everything else, the only thing you remember today is one thing. Please remember this. When the Christian world is tempted to be distracted by a world around that is going completely crazy, keep calm and carry on. Just keep calm and carry on. You've all got that T-shirt, right? You know where it originated, of course. It was a Second World War publicity poster in England, Britain, actually, um, attempting to get people to stop panicking. Because generally speaking, panic is not a great idea, in, even in a real crisis. And therefore, whatever situation we're in now, if, when the temptation is for Christians to be uh, unable to tear their eyes away from and their minds away from speculations about whatever has just hit Twitter or CNN or wherever else, just take a deep breath, keep calm and carry on. And with that, off we go. So... Let me just try and highlight for you what I actually think. <clears throat> Here we go. <laughs> if I lose my voice now, that'd be pretty bad, wouldn't it? <clears throat> what this is actually talking about. I'm going to sketch it first, just in outline, and then we'll jump into some of the details. Just look with me. You're going to have to have your Bibles. If you've not got a Bible, I hope you've memorized this bit, because otherwise you're going to be in big trouble today. This is like missing a week at karate class and then coming back and discovering they just learned a bunch of new moves. And Chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, is written by Paul with the assistance of his companions to the church in Thessalonica, a bunch of young Christians who'd been converted during Paul's second missionary journey a few weeks earlier, maybe a few months earlier. They're faithful, they love one another, but there's a temptation we saw a couple of weeks ago for them to lose hope, partly because of their suffering and their persecutions, and partly because they They've got some eschatological misunderstandings which make them feel like there's no end in sight for this. And so in chapter 1, Paul wants to reassure them on the final day of judgment, verse 6, God will set things right. He'll repay with affliction those who afflict you. And then verse 7, grant relief to you who are afflicted. So it's okay. It's all going to be okay in the end. Then in chapter 2, Paul reveals that he's apparently quite troubled about another misunderstanding that they have. Verse, chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Yet he's saying don't panic about this, the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter or any kind of other report that seems to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So there's some big event which he calls the day of the Lord, and it seems the Thessalonians might be afraid they've missed it. It's passed us by, and they're worried about that. Paul says, don't worry. And the reason they're not supposed to worry is because it hasn't passed them by. And he reminds them of that in, chapters, in verses 3 to 5. Look with me, verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless... And there's a bunch of other things that need to happen first, and then he details them. The rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. You see what he's saying? The day of the Lord hasn't come because this stuff hasn't happened. Verse 5, don't you remember when I was with you? I told you this. Like, come on, wake up, guys. 
And then verse 6, he goes into a bit more detail about what this man of lawlessness stuff is, because they're probably thinking, what, man of lawlessness? He definitely said something about that. What's verse 6. And you know that what is restraining him, you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. You see, so verse 6, this man of lawlessness is currently being restrained by something, verse 6 or someone, verse 7. This is what the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Something mysterious behind the scenes is already going on, parallel with the mystery of the gospel under the old covenant, was kind of ongoing but now it's been unveiled. Well, this mystery of lawlessness is ongoing, but it's not yet been unveiled, verse 7. In verse 8, when it's finally revealed and it's all clear who this man of lawlessness is, then Jesus will act in judgment against him and then prophetic language, killed by the breath of his mouth. Then, then we're ready for the day of the Lord, but but not yet, so don't panic. You see what he's saying? And then verse 9 to 12, next week, we're going to look in more detail at what he says about the lawless one deceiving people and God is using even that deception for his purposes. So we, I thought, well, let's not try and talk about that this week. That's just too much. So we'll get to that next week. Right, so you can see, you see what the text is talking about. In summary, it's like, guys, don't worry that you've missed the day of the Lord. It hasn't already happened. It can't have done because a bunch of other stuff's got to happen first. And because that hasn't happened, therefore this can't happen. So it's okay. We don't need to be concerned about it. You remember I told you all about this. And the problem is, Paul the Apostle never came to Fort Worth to preach to us, so we're not quite 100% sure all the details, unless we remember that the Scriptures are sufficient for all the things we need to know for life and godliness, and so if we dig around and think a little bit, we might be able to uncover what some of those details are. We're trying to figure out then, what was it that was in the Thessalonians' mind, minds, that they were concerned about, and If we can untangle Paul's response to that, maybe we'll pick up some implications for us. You with me? And so this generates, those three sections of the passage generate a bunch of questions. So first couple, like, what events are in view? Verses 1 and 2. The the next little section, 3 to 5, is like this rebellion stuff and man of lawlessness stuff, what's all that about? And then verses 6 to 8, what's restraining him? If we can untangle this stuff, oh, and what does it mean for Jesus to kill him by the breath of his mouth? It'd be quite handy to understand that as well. If we can untangle that, then we've probably got a picture in our minds of what Paul is talking about. Are you with me? And I promise it will have some practical implications, but ready, get your um, thick, tangled, weed-proof boots on, because we're about to go wading through them. Let's jump in and look in a bit more detail at the text that's before us. First, what event is Paul talking about? You'll probably know, and you can probably guess if you don't know, it's often assumed that what Paul is talking about here is the final day of judgment, what he's been talking about in chapter 1. And that phrase, the day of the Lord, kind of helps along that way. It suggests, well, maybe that's what Paul is talking about. But actually, that's a mistake. I'll level with you straight up. I'm going to explain why I think this in a second. It's a mistake to think Paul is talking in chapter 2 about the same thing he's talking about in chapter 1. The day of the Lord can mean that great final day, but the phrase is used throughout Scripture to describe many different interventions by God in history. And so we shouldn't just fix on day of the Lord and think it's general resurrection, final judgment stuff. I want to show you why. Just look with me. Look. First, you notice there's a contrast 
between how Paul expects the Thessalonians to react to the events in chapter 1 from how he expects them to react in chapter 2. In chapter 1, he just tells them about this, this day that's coming, confident that they'll be thinking, oh, that's great, that's a relief when we're vindicated. But their reaction in chapter 2 is very different. And so it at least suggests that perhaps different events are in view. More importantly, second, these events in chapter 2 are clearly imminent. Or at least it's not wrong for the Thessalonians to think that they might be just around the corner. Otherwise, why are they worried about it? If, if the thing that Paul is talking about in chapter 2 was actually the final judgment, the simplest thing for Paul to do would be to say, well, that's not going to happen for thousands of years until the nations are discipled. So chill, really, you don't need to worry about that. But he doesn't say that. You see, he has a more complex argument which suggests that this day of the Lord is an imminent event which they could reasonably think might happen in their lifetime. And of course, it actually is something that Jesus prophesied would happen in in this generation uh, in uh, the Gospels he talked about. Um, Now, of course, what some people then say is, yeah, yeah, but Paul didn't... Paul thought the final judgment was going to happen in his lifetime. Paul was clueless, and so was Jesus. That's often how liberal scholars will deal with texts like this. I'll say Paul and Jesus were both confused about the timing of the final consummation of all things. And then they'll say, well, Paul changed his mind towards the end of his life. And so so some of his writings suggest that it's off in the future. Some, no, no, no. It's not one coming that Paul changed his mind. It's one soon and one's off in the future. There are two comings. One is soon and one's off in the future. And the point is that this one is the soon one. Which leads to the third reason why you just cannot believe that Paul is here thinking about the general resurrection and the final judgment when everybody will be raised from the dead and everyone will stand before the judgment seat of God to give an account for all the things they've ever done. However confused the Thessalonians might have been about eschatology, they can never have been so confused as to imagine they would hear about that by letter. I mean, I ask you, how dumb would your eschatology have to be for you to think you'd hear about the resurrection of the dead by UPS? You know what I mean? It's just... But that's what Paul seems to think is plausible. And he says, don't be deceived by that. It can't be the case that he's talking about the general resurrection because he'd be laughing them off the face of modern Greece if he actually thought that They thought the resurrection of the dead is something you can hear about by a postcard from somebody. So, in other words, it's much more plausible to imagine that what the Thessalonians are worried about having missed out on is some political or social upheaval that happened somewhere else that they're being notified about by letter or by spoken word or something. You with me? So what would that be? Well, the obvious candidate for the biggest upheaval in the first century Jewish and Christian world is, of course the 70 AD overthrow and destruction of Jerusalem and its temple by the Roman armies, which was prophesied by Jesus himself during Jesus' uh, ministry before his death and resurrection. And what's really interesting is that Jesus' prophecy about that fits at remarkable levels of detail with what Paul is saying in Second Thessalonians. And now you start to see why this sermon really could go on for a long time if we go all the way into the weeds, because what we'd actually have to do is to go all the way through Matthew 24, like one verse at a time. And let me tell you, 
That is one sermon series right there, just that one chapter. So what do we do? Well, come on, let's have a little look. You go back, if you've got your Bibles, turn back to Matthew 24, where what, we've, what we discover is we're reading an account of Jesus' prediction of the downfall of the temple in Jerusalem, at the point where the living God will act in judgment on an old covenant people, the people of Israel, that religious institutions associated with the temple that have rejected him. They foretold that during his lifetime, 30 AD or so, and it happened in 70 AD. Now look, Matthew 24, verse 1, and just notice, I'll just read it through and, and you'll notice some of the parallels. So Matthew 24, verse 1, Jesus left the temple. Okay, we'll pause there, right? That's very much like the glory of the Lord leaving the temple in Ezekiel's vision, in Ezekiel 10 and 11. Go back and read that, not now, later on today. Where the glory of the Lord departs from the temple and settles on the mountain east of Jerusalem, which is the Mount of Olives, which is where Jesus goes. He left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see these, don't you? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another will not be thrown down. There's the promise of judgment upon the temple. Verse 3, and as he sat on the Mount of Olives. So you see what he's done. He's done the thing, Jesus has done the thing that the glory of the Lord was going to do as an act of decisive judgment against a rebellious nation of old covenant Israel who refused to hear the word of the Lord and accept their Messiah. And the promise is that the temple is going to be destroyed. And then the disciples are like, what? Verse 3, tell us two questions. When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And that word translated coming, guess what? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see? Now, that word, the word is parousia. Um, appearing, presence, maybe often translated coming. Now, it is used in different contexts in Scripture, but it certainly can be used in this sense. And it will be natural for Paul to use that word to describe the coming. And we'll see, actually, in a few minutes, the coming is not Jesus coming to earth. That's another left-behind Hal Lindsay, late great planet Earth mistake. The coming is the coming referred to in Daniel 7, where Jesus comes, same verb, in the Hebrew translation of the verb, into the presence of the Ancient of Days to be enthroned before him. Is that coming? Which is why it's in heaven, which is mentioned elsewhere. But that com- it's natural to associate the two events. Right. Now in chapter 2, verse 1, you notice something else. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. That sounds like a description and a parallel description of the same event. So this coming, okay, Jesus coming into the throne room of the living God to receive the authority over heaven and earth that is rightly his. And our being gathered to him. Where does Jesus mention that? Oh, Matthew 24. Go back to Matthew 24 and read down. Well, we're not going to read all of it. Uh, Tempting though it is, right? But our being gathered to him. Look at verse 29. Actually, verse 29 to 31 has a whole bunch of parallels with the Thessalonian situation. Just just try and just read with me and you'll see them. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Right, well, there we are, tribulation. What are the Thessalonians experiencing? A great tribulation. Great trials. Great persecutions. Immediately after that, and then you've got these 
prophetic language taken mostly from the book of Isaiah and the Psalms that describes the downfall of human kings and leaders. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, I I acknowledge this is a it's a hard thing to demonstrate this, but that's, like I said, it's, it's Isaiah 13, it's Isaiah 10, it's, it's Joel chapter 2, it's some of the Psalms. Stars falling from heaven does not mean Sirius B lands in the Pacific. What it means is that the king of Babylon has been dethroned. Or maybe the great high priest of Israel has become like the king of Babylon, rebellious against God, so he's going to be dethroned. That's really where... Um, Uh, Jesus' language is coming from. Then verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Because remember, the coming is not coming to earth, it's coming into the throne room of God to receive authority and power and a kingdom and so on, Daniel 7. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Well, yes. Yeah, because um, like perhaps tribes, because people of Israel, um, what was the response on the day of Pentecost again? When Peter climaxed his sermon by saying, like, this Jesus whom you crucified has been made Lord and Christ, and they're like, oh my goodness, what should we do? All the tribes of the earth shall mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. Now that's revelation language where angels are like pastors, preachers, missionaries, ministers, angels like this man here. Angels like me, I guess. Angels like you, taking the gospel out with a loud trumpet call. And the trumpets, go and read Peter Lightheart's four gazillion page commentary on the book of Revelation. Trumpets are the preaching of the gospel of Christ in the book of Revelation. So the church goes out preaching the gospel and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So you've got coming, all that detail, gather. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. You see what Paul is talking about? What Paul is talking about is Jesus coming into his Father's presence to be enthroned and the whole church being gathered. And in fact, you probably know this, the, um, uh, both the Old and New Testament Hebrew and Greek words for church mean gathering or assembly. All of us being churched together to him. Don't get worried. It hasn't happened yet. It hadn't happened yet when he wrote to the Thessalonians. You see the mistake we might easily make? That's the mistake. It hadn't happened in the 50s when Paul was writing. Now, just pause a second before we go on. Like you can immediately see, we, you just step back a, a moment from this. Um, if we think in this way about how to interpret biblical prophecy, especially New Testament forward-looking prophecy. We are not going to be going out and buying a copy of the late great planet Earth and all 16 volumes of the Left Behind series and getting our raptor charts and trying to figure out what's about to happen in our future. Can you see that? This is a far more biblically cogent line of exegesis, which, if pursued consistently throughout the New Testament, highlights that many, not all, Many of the forward-looking New Testament prophecies were said to relate to events that are going to happen soon because they were going to happen soon, like 10 years hence from 60 AD or 15 years hence from 55 AD. There are still events prophesied in the New Testament which haven't happened. Resurrection of Jesus, for example, 1 Corinthians 8. All the stuff about the future glory in Romans... Not 1 Corinthians 15, sorry, I was thinking about the next text. 
Yeah, one of you guys over there were like, what? First, first Corinthians, yeah, well done. First Corinthians 15, that hasn't happened yet. Romans 8, future glory, that hasn't happened yet. There are future-oriented texts which still lie in our future, but many of them lie in the past and deliver us from Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. Lord have mercy. Okay, so that's what one, verse 1 and 2 are about. Right, verse 3. <laughs> Just when you thought it couldn't get crazier. Let no one deceive you in any way, because that day can't come unless the rebellion comes first. And then, what on earth is that about? The man of lawlessness is revealed, and this man of lawlessness is called the son of destruction, and he opposes and exalts himself against every other god. It doesn't say so-called in the Greek, actually. It's just every other god. He makes himself the greatest of the gods. And then he sets himself up in the temple. Now, this has generated a whole bunch of speculation in modern literature, quote-unquote, uh, please don't bother with that. This is one of those things where Googling really won't help you. Like, you Google, who is the man of lawlessness? I asked ChatGPT, who is the man of lawlessness? <laughs> like, oh well, so much for AI. All right. But now there are a couple of scholarly suggestions. If you read decent commentaries, there's a couple of possibilities. You heard of um, Antiochus IV? Hands up if you've done your kind of... You heard of Antiochus? Yeah. So Antiochus IV was the ruler of the Seleucid Empire from 175 to 164 BC. The Seleucid was basically what's left over from Alexander the Great's massive empire. Now this guy was big cheese, okay? Antiochus IV, he ruled over Israel, Syria, the whole of West and North Mediterranean, Iraq, Iran, as far as Afghanistan and Tajikistan, right? The Seleucid Empire was huge. And Antiochus... Um, unlike his predecessors, he actually withdrew religious liberty from the empire. And he insisted that there was a kind of Greek syncretistic religion had to be followed, including in the temple in Jerusalem. And at one point, when he got ideas so far above his station that they're out of sight, he actually took for himself another name. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means manifested or revealed, and the implication was that he is God revealed. That's what he intended to say. So people often, you'll read about Antiochus Epiphanes, insisting on pagan worship in the temple and revealing himself as the true God. Looks a bit like this, doesn't it? only problem is it happened 200 years too early. It doesn't really make sense as something that's about to happen. But for some reason, all the commentaries and some of the preachers feel it necessary to mention it. Sorry. Uh, Another more plausible example date-wise is actually a Roman emperor, Roman emperor Caligula, who in the late 30s, I think it's 40 AD, ordered that a statue of himself be erected in the temple in Jerusalem. Now that looks like a really serious candidate, doesn't it? It's not quite the right date, but it's close. The only problem with this is that um, the ruler of Syria refused to carry out the order. He's like, this is going to cause such chaos, I'm not doing this. Not not on my watch, buddy, not even if you're the emperor. You're not having a statue in the temple in Jerusalem. And so Claudius reissued the order a year later, had this big brass statue made, put on a ship, and it's on its way to Jerusalem by boat when Caligula was assassinated. So that wasn't actually put up in the temple at all, so that can't be it. So what are we supposed to make of it? What a nightmare. Okay, so where's James Jordan when you need him? Uh, He's written a bunch of articles about this. Go ahead and find him. If you need a reference, um, ask... um, Clayton or me, I'm sure we've probably both gotten. Yeah, yeah. Blame him, okay? But this is my best guess. It, it feels to me like it makes sense. Here's what I think is going on. The word rebellion 
is actually the word apostasia, which we rightly normally translate apostasy. Now, apostasy is not just any old sin. Apostasy is the kind of sin that could only be committed by somebody who was once actually a member of the people of God themselves, faithful in some sense. This is not a sin that the Roman emperor could commit. This is a sin that a Jewish leader in the first century might have committed. Moreover, the idea of him being set up in the temple and being worshipped finds some kind of parallel, again, in Matthew 24. If you look, uh, Matthew 24, verse 15, I mean, the pot's about to thicken, but I'll read it anyway. Jesus says, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand it. Like, which reader understands that? Please. Anyway, Maybe they were smarter than us in the first century. Um, But the point is, there's something going to happen, abomination of desolation, it's going to be set up in the temple. Jesus prophesied this as well, in connection with all the same events. And Jim points out, rightly, that that particular sin, an abomination, is a peculiarly Old Testament Israel sin. Abominations are particularly serious kinds of sins that the people of Israel might commit. And so then you can think, okay, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, it's in Daniel 11 and Daniel 12, which again likely speaks of future rebellion at that point by Old Covenant Israel rejecting her Messiah. And then another key detail is added, and I want to just take you back again to Matthew 24. Notice how the logic fits so well with what's going on in Thessalonica. So read from verse 21. You're getting two sermons today, right? You've got Matthew 24 as well. You're welcome. It's on me. Um, Then there will be a great tribulation. Well, that's verse 21. That's like in Thessalonica. Verse 22, if those days hadn't been cut short, nobody would be saved. But verse 23, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. Fascinating. We're not supposed to believe that a Christ, the Christ, would be back on earth at that time. (laughs) So much for anybody who is expecting, at that time, Jesus' bodily return. He says, don't believe it. He says, there will be false Christs, though. Look, verse 24, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and great wonders. Now, false Christs, we all heard um, Pastor Neil preaching through 1 John. Antichrists, the Antichrist. It makes sense probably, to identify the false Christs and false prophets in Matthew 24 with the Antichrist in 1 John, with the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2, probably, because they seem to be doing the same kind of thing. And if they are, then what you start to see is the implications are quite striking. What, what you've got described in these texts taken together is a period after Pentecost of four decades or so of increasing hostility against the followers of Christ, the early church. Just as Jesus promised, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you, obviously. Which gets to a point of no return, so to speak, apostasy full and final rejection of the Messiah. 
by those who really ought to have welcomed him. So tentatively, I think, probably, that's what the rebellion is, or rather the apostasy. It's the final decisive rejection of Jesus by his own people, which Jesus promises will be met with that judgment of God in the form of the Roman armies marching upon Jerusalem, burning her temple, and so on and so forth. So, that just leaves one set, oh, just, one set of questions, verses 6 to 8. Um, what's restraining him? What's, what's currently happening in Jerusalem that might stop the Lord Jesus acting in judgment against her temple, against this antichrist figure or anti-Christian figure, the man of lawlessness? Well, can you think anywhere else in the Bible, can you think of anywhere else in the Bible where the Lord warns of judgment against a city and then he delays from doing so? He's restrained from doing so. You remember? Who said Sodom? Remember the Lord promises, warns in Genesis 18 that he's going to act in judgment against Sodom, right? And Abraham says, whoa, hold on a second. What, uh, hmm, please don't be crossing me, but what if there are 50 righteous people there? The Lord says, okay, well, if there's 50 righteous people there, obviously I'm not going to act in judgment. I'd be restrained. And Abraham's like, okay, 50, yeah, how about 45? I mean, you're not going to destroy the city for the sake of five. And you see how the logic goes. And he goes all the way down to 10. If there are 10 people in the city, 10 righteous people in the city, the living God won't act in judgment against it. And Abraham's like, I think I pushed my luck far enough. I think I probably better stop now. Although he's not pushed his luck because 10 is, guess what? The number which in certain, certainly later in some form of, so some Jewish traditions, is the number of men required to form a synagogue. If there's one church of faithful people in the city, the Lord won't destroy it. So why might the Lord be withholding his hand? Why, what might be restraining him, which could simultaneously be a person, someone, verse 7, and a thing, something, verse 6? Probably, and again, even Jim, thanks brother, is tentatively the church in Jerusalem, led by James, who we know was martyred at a certain point between 30 and 70 AD. Maybe what Paul is highlighting here is, look, currently the avenging hand of the living God is being restrained by the presence of believers in that city. There'll, there'll come a time when they're all expelled, and, and at that point, which kind of figures, because what does Jesus say? Um, uh, in Matthew 24, he says, um, when you see the armies, you know, like, you want to flee to the mountains. Where was it that he told Lot to go? Go to the mountains. It looks like Matthew 24 is predicting a kind of fulfillment of uh, Genesis 18 through 19. Right, so, whew, okay, what have we got? We've got this confused and rattled first century church that thinks that these decisive events which would have liberated them from their mainly Jewish persecutors have actually already happened and so they're still being persecuted and the liberation has passed them by. And Paul says, no, no, it's not happened yet. And it can't happen yet because there's still stuff going on in Jerusalem that is delaying the Lord's hand. But at some point that church will be removed from there and then the Lord's hand will act in judgment against Israel and Jerusalem and her temple. 
remove the high priest, who might be the, the actual man of lawlessness, and Ananias, the high priest. Not sure. And then it's all going to be... That's, that's, but it's not happened yet, don't worry, it hasn't passed you by. Right, okay. You've got two or three minutes for some practical thoughts about this? Yeah, of course you have. Notice that Paul the Apostle takes it for granted that our God intrudes into history. And I think this is a... Maybe we realise this every time we pray, but it's just worth reflecting for a moment. The living God intrudes, and I don't want to say intervenes, because it makes it sound like he's not doing it the rest of the time. The Lord acts in history, sometimes just through things that have an alternative political explanation. And we should be ready to see the living God's hand in those things. Let me give you some examples. I mean, this one is prophesied. Obviously, we should be ready to see God at work here. But um, last year, Dobbs, the Dobbs decision, overturning Roe in the Supreme Court. I think, retrospectively, looking back, I'm very happy to say, yes, thank you, God, for acting in such a way to start rolling back that appalling and murderous legislation from 49 years before. And we should be ready to say that. Um, ditto, I mean, and more tentatively, you know, if you find yourself in a, in, a, in a nation governed by fools, then you might like to reflect on Isaiah chapter 3, verse 4, which says that I will make boys their princes and e- infants shall rule over them. But he does so when the nation itself has become so rebellious. Like, if, if we find ourselves governed by fools, then one thing to do is to take a look in the mirror and make sure we're not just the sort of people who deserve it. I, I think we've got to be ready to embrace that possibility and to view history through the lens of God's providence. And it's disturbing to do that. You are like a drop in a bucket, aren't we? That's what Isaiah says. Surely the nations are like that. At the same time, and here's, here's the danger we must avoid. There is a, a grave danger of being distracted by speculation about what God's going to do next. And it's really intriguing to me that that's actually what Paul is writing this to avoid the Thessalonians doing, to prevent them from doing. If you read on, you get to chapter 3, it seems that uh, out of nowhere he has this rebuke for a bunch of people who've stopped working. They've just quit their jobs. And you think, why is he talking about this in a context where where there's all this exegetical... um, eschatological feverishness about the ends of this current order of things. And then you realize, of course, that's exactly the kind of thing we might easily be tempted to do. It's all very well looking back and saying, thank you, Lord, for what you've done in the past, but now we're going to spend whatever evening sitting on the back porch, cigar in hand, speculating about what the Lord is going to do next. No, and Paul's like, well, look, you know, go and get yourself a job for a start, and everybody else, don't give him any food until he does. In other words, keep calm, stop worrying what God's going to do. You don't know what God is going to do next. Keep calm and carry on. And I think we do have a, a tendency, probably exacerbated by the way we consume our news, to become as fixated as CNN is with producing it. You know, we used to survive perfectly well without the 24-7 news cycle. People used to live really productive lives waiting until Saturday to read about what had happened during the week. Now we feel like we're out of date if we've not heard within 20 minutes. It's like, really? 
has that kind of obsession with watching our present and possible immediate future circumstances made us any more productive than our fathers and grandfathers? Or has it actually made us into a kind of reformed equivalent of how Lindsay and Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye's speculating about what God is going to do? And it's just that we're speculating about the next six months. I think there's a danger for us. And actually, Paul's warning is, like, get back to work. Keep calm and carry on. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for uh, even these complex and at times baffling details. We ask that you'd give us the right kind of wisdom and circumspection, rightly to recognize that you are active in the world around us, even as you are active in our own lives. And yet at the same time, we would be foolish to become so obsessed with trying to figure out what you're doing next that we become distracted from closer priorities. And so watch over us, we pray, and give us hearts of practical wisdom that remain committed to what you have given us to do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.